Hear the word of God from Genesis 34 and Matthew 1. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. Genesis chapter 34. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adalam, where he stayed with a man named Hirah. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. And when he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living in Kazib. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother, Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. And so the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son, Shelah, is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. And after the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hirah, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was afraid that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. And then she sat beside the road at the entrance of the village of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had, her, had covered her face. And so he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. And she answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. And then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterward, she went back home, took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend Hirah, the Adulamite, to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things that he had given her as his guarantee. But Hirah couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who was sitting beside the road at the entrance of Enaim? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. And so Hirah returned to Judah and told him, I can't find her anywhere. And the men of the village claim that they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughingstock of the village if we went back again to look for her. 
About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now, because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, She is more righteous than I am, because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand, and the midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand, and out came his brother, what? The midwife ex exclaimed, how did you break out first? So he was named Perez, and then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zerah. And now to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. This is the word of the Lord. After a difficult passage like that. Whew. All right. Well, I am pinch hitting this morning. Our, our pastor, uh, Lawrence, blew his back out about a week ago, and he's here this morning, so you can say hey after service. Thanks, Jimmy, for bringing the ice pack for his back. Uh, yeah, uh, Lawrence, we're praying for you, brother. God is good. He's with us this morning, and we are going to hear his word proclaimed. So the sermon is titled, Seeing Hope in the Hard Stories. I'm Danny. I'm the international student pastor here at Waypoint, and I do a few other things, and I'm just delighted to preach God's word to you. Uh, we're in a series looking at the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, from the Greek word pente, which just means five, or the Torah, which is in Hebrew means law or instruction. Uh, we say at Waypoint, we are a people of the book. One of our values, it says, we desire to teach and uphold the authority of God's word because we believe scripture is God's written revelation to humanity. We believe the Bible is to be taught, obeyed, and trusted in all that it instructs and commands and promises. So we preach through the Bible. In 2020 and 2021, we're in a Bible reading plan. And even if you're behind, you can just start where we are. You can catch up. And if you do this, we'll read the whole Bible in two years. So we're, our preaching series lines up with part of this. And there are many seemingly disturbing accounts in Genesis. But there are also a few not so seemingly. They're just straight up disturbing. And we're going to look at three of these accounts in Genesis this morning. Rebecca just read one account, the account of Judah and Tamar. We're also going to look at the account of the incest between Lot and his daughters. 
and the rape of Dinah in Genesis 34. So we're looking at Genesis 19, Genesis 34, and Genesis 38. So I'm going to answer three questions this morning. How are we as Christians to process these disturbing accounts? How do we see the love of God and find hope in these accounts? And finally, how do we live in and bring the hope of Jesus in a broken world still filled, still filled with injustice, violence, and sexual abuse? Question one, how are we as Christians to process these disturbing accounts? The easiest answer is to just generally ignore the Old Testament and even some of the harder sections of the New Testament and just focus on what makes us feel good. I wish that could be my, what we do, but we're not going to do that. This is actually what some people have been doing for about the past 200 years in the European church, and it's trickled into America. Uh, while this method often starts with good intentions, um, you do not end up with the God who's revealed in the Bible, who broke through the darkness and reconciled creation. You end up with the God that you want him to be, that you've constructed in your head. You pick and choose who God is and how he does things and how he should do things. 65 years ago, C.S. Lewis predicted this would happen, and he wrote an essay called God in the Dock. Look at this photo. So this is just, an, uh, I think this is a Supreme Court in some state. But the dock is where the lady is standing, and you see the judges. So throughout history, oh, every civilization generally thought humans are in the dock, and God or the gods are the judge. And God or the creator sets the rules and we're pleading with God. But somewhere around 200 years ago, we shifted it and we put God in the dock. And we tell him who he needs to be, what he's doing wrong, and how he should operate. Thomas Jefferson literally cut out the parts of the Bible that he liked and didn't like. You can go see this at Monticello. He made his own Bible. He became God. He decided what parts of the Bible he wanted to obey and which parts he didn't. Um, this is tempting. We all want to be God. This was the temptation in the garden. It was the temptation at the Tower of Babel. And it happens over and over again. Throughout, in Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and even throughout church history. The amazing thing is that we serve a God that lets us question him and will still show mercy and love to us even when we do question him. And one of the beautiful things about the Christian faith is from the Old to the New Testament is that God allows us to struggle in trusting him. And he always provides his grace to help us through the fears and doubts. The Psalms are the main Old Testament commentary on itself. And they are filled with songs and poems of lament and struggle with God and how God governs the broken and sinful world. They don't put God on the dock. They keep the thing in the right perspective, but we can still struggle. From the dock, we can still ask God. We can still plead with God. We do not have to ignore or cut up parts of the Bible we don't understand or think we don't like. We can trust God and study the full counsel of his scripture, of his word. We're not going to ignore the Old Testament or downplay it. We're going to study it in community and meditate on it as part of understanding who God is and who we are as his people. Hear the words of Jesus in Luke 24. 
This is after Jesus has resurrected and he, he goes and visits with some of the disciples. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still not, did not believe it because of joy and amazement, they asked, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They took a, feast, uh, a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Interesting, resurrected Jesus eats. Our resurrected bodies will, won't be ghosts. Pretty cool. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the songs. This is what we call the Old Testament. Jesus knew that there were original authors, and then he knew throughout Hebrew history that they edited it, edited it, and there were edits, and he knew there was a Greek translation and a Hebrew translation. He knew that even the two translations used some different words, but he said, these are my words. This is your Bible. Take it. When Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, He's actually talking about the Old Testament. That was the Bible of the early church. So Jesus says, you know, this is what is written. And then, he, and then, he, and then in 45, he says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And the repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. He's saying this is actually in the Old Testament. You can find this in Genesis. You can find this in Isaiah. You can find this in Ezekiel. You can find this in the Psalms. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. He's talking about the spirit. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. We're this people. We have the word and we have the spirit. Jesus is our king and our savior and he has given us his scriptures. He has opened our minds. He has filled us with this Holy Spirit. We need Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, even though Leviticus and Numbers are pretty boring. <laughs> I'll be honest. How many of you have ever done the one-year Bible plan, and you get, you, first of all, you, gotta ha you get through Genesis, you read all these disturbing stories. Exodus is really cool, you know, Moses and the Red Sea, and then you start getting a list of names or rules. And you're like, I need to go back to Colossians. I need to, <laughs> give me Philippians. Give me something. We need to know it to know God and ourselves. So how are we as Christians to process these disturbing accounts? The first step is we need to start by thinking of the Pentateuch as a book from God given to his chosen people. As an entire book to be studied and known by specific parts, but also as a whole. And we can look at it as a beautiful forest. But if you look at some of the trees, you'll see they're not always healthy and they, they need serious health from the farmer. So if you just look at this one story that Rebecca just read, you, you see a diseased tree that's about to fall over. But if you look at the forest and you, and you see how the farmer is, is doing something, that he is making a beautiful forest, it, it begins to make a little more sense. We can't just look at a few of the broken and diseased trees and know the plan of the farmer for his forest. Bible scholar Stephen Dempster, in an amazing book that's edited by D.A. Carson that just talks about biblical theology, he states this on this topic. This is part of the problem with fundamentalism, whether on the theological right or the theological left. The text is simply used and not studied. It is a one-dimensional text. On one hand, 
It is a thoroughly spiritual document containing Holy Ghost language and offering a repository of insights that anticipate developments, for example, in the sciences. On the other hand, it is a thoroughly human creation that speaks to the struggle and evolution of the human spirit and, cannot, and can be used to endorse the latest cultural fad by focusing on that part of the text that happens to conform to the latest contemporary trends. That's Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, and cutting up the Bible while discarding or neutralizing its less palatable parts. In both views, there is no appreciation of the text as a literary whole, a redemptive story that aims at the restoration of a lost destiny for the human race and creation. I love that quote. So let's look at the Torah as a whole. It starts with a brief overview of world history, Genesis 1 through 11, mainly focusing on the rebellion of humanity against God and his beautiful plan. But it also shows us God's gracious plan to save the rebellious humanity. And then it laser focuses in on Abraham and his family, the solution to the question of how God is gonna save rebellious humanity. Old Testament scholar DJ Kleins, that's a pretty cool name, right? DJ Kleins, the guy's like, now he's dead, but he was just this old, old Old Testament scholar DJ Kleins, now he has a cool name. He, he says, the Pentateuch is bound together by a three-part promise of God to Abraham, land, descendants, and relationships. The different books treat the aspects of one promise variously. Genesis stresses descendants. Can you see descendants in that story? Exodus Leviticus, the relationship with God, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, mainly land. So think about descendants. Why is it important for Abraham to have descendants? What was the promise to Abraham? You'll have descendants. If Abraham has no kids, there's no nation, there's, not, there's no start to this plan that God has for him. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to hone in on the descendants. The story's really going to focus on the descendants. Um, Exodus and Leviticus, relationship with God, and we're going to look at those in the coming months and Numbers and Deuteronomy, mainly land, but Deuteronomy goes back to the, to, the, to the descendants and the relationship. But by land, it's talking about the nationhood and the prosperity that God called them to. They weren't a people and then they become a people. So let's look at these accounts. So in light of that, in light of thinking about it as a whole, let's look at, let's, let's look at these, these accounts. So Genesis 19, Lot and his daughters. What's going on? So Lot is a nephew of Abraham. Circumcised under the covenant God made with Abraham, he moves near Sodom. So I'm going to actually move. So let's pretend like this is Sodom. You know, this, this bad, this city that's really awesome. It looks good. It, it looks, it's like Las Vegas. You know, it's got the lights and everything. I mean, it just looks so attractive. And it, Lot knows he's not supposed to live there, but the land near it, he's like, ooh, that looks good. So he, Abraham settles over there, Lot settles here. And God blesses Lot and gives him a lot of stuff. But he keeps drifting. He keeps drifting. He keeps drifting. And then all of a sudden, he's a full-fledged member of the city, marries somebody from the city, has two daughters who grow up in the city. So that's the context. It gets to the point where these visitors come. This is a very disturbing story. And the men of the city want to rape the visitors who visit Lot. They're actually angels. And he says, no, take my daughters instead and rape them instead. That's, that's how twisted Lot got. So this is what his daughters grow up in. They grow up in the city. And then 
In God's mercy, God destroys, in His judgment, He destroys Sodom for its sin. And Lot and his daughters escaped. The son-in-laws, I mean the fiancés of the daughters thought it was a joke and they didn't believe God and they're, they're destroyed. Lot's wife wants one more look and she's also destroyed. Lot and his daughters survive. God provides a way. Lot could have lived in another city and God, we believe, God would have given him protection, but he gets scared of people and he goes and lives in a cave and he gets old. And then his daughters are like, hey, we don't have any descendants. Our dad didn't give us any descendants. Now I want to put a time out here. Let's look at some slides. So picture tents. Close your eyes first. Don't look at the slide. Close your eyes. Picture tents and villages and goats and, you know, people 3,000 years ago. Rural people, small city states. All right, now look at the slide. All right, this would have been maybe, this is a recreation, maybe what Sodom would have looked like. You know, maybe 10, 15,000 people. They built pretty good. It might have had a wall around it, who knows. But this was a pretty impressive city. Now, next slide. This is, this is an actual replica of a Hittite city that they found the remains of. So they made it. So this was a big, this is probably the biggest city around. Next slide. This is actual people. This picture was taken about 20 years ago. This is people actually living in tents in the Middle East. Next slide. These are actual tents. This picture isn't that old. So what's more grand? This? Tents? Small flock? Or a giant city with a big army? Of course Lot, Abraham, all of them would be like, we want that. How do you get that? Descendants and alliances. So the whole book of Genesis is this struggle between God saying, no, I'm going to provide the way through your descendants. I'll protect you. You don't need an army. Versus Lot and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob looking and Laban. No, look at that fortified city. That's what we want. We don't want to, we'll never get to that by just you alone, God. We've got to take things into our own hands to get to that. So that's the environment that Lot's daughters grew up in. So they know there's no way they're going to get to, next slide. They're, this is actually an ancient city. This picture is about 100 years old. They, they, one of the few preserved ancient cities that would have been on a hillside. Next slide. This is, this is an artist replica. This would have been like when your family's starting to get off. So it, maybe this is could have what Abraham could have created. Something like this. Little, little, little city. You know, just his family and a few others. Then next slide. Then this, you know. How do you get to that? So Lot's daughters want to get this because they think, they, they even knew about the promise of Abraham. They were in on, they, they knew the conversations. So they get Lot drunk, and they both sleep with him, and, he, and they both get pregnant. Very disturbing story. Um, now, I'd like to say that this never happens, but these kind of stories still happen to this day. Stuff like this happens all the time. Now, we can't really fault them because they were taught offspring are the most important thing, and they thought that was their only way. Notice the striking similarity between that story and... Noah. Noah saw, sees God destroy the earth and kind of gets drunk and makes a major mistake. Um, the best thing I could think of this having descendants, the best modern parallel would be education. What's the way to get ahead now? Like every parent's going to do everything they can to get their kids a good education, right? Everything, almost everything we do is geared toward that for children. 
Like, where does, where does a child spend most of their time between age 5 and 18? On the farm? No. Education, education, education. Everything. If, you, if your child can get into a good college and get a high-paying job, it's going to bless the whole family. Well, they thought if we could have kids, especially sons, but sons and daughters, sons to work the farm and, and then daughters to marry other tribes so we could create allegiances. So in their mind, these daughters are just like, hey, we have, you know, if parents now were like, we have no way to send our kids to school, they would probably do everything they could to get their kids to school. Even some, some means that maybe are a little shady. That's what Lot's daughters did. They were like, we need this. This is what, and then they weren't afraid of incest or anything because they grew up in Sodom. So they didn't, it wasn't even on their radar that that was a little gross. So they do it. They have these children. One is named uh, Ben-Ami, which means son of my father's people. The other one is named Moab, which sounds like the Hebrew word for father. And we're going to hear more about the Moabites and the Ammonites later. Interesting thing is the Moabites and the Ammonites, the descendants of this incest, are... Israel's nemesis is later, but they could have been blessed. God provided a way for them to be blessed. So that's another story for another day. But remember the name Moab. Um, the main thing we can glean from this is that Lot was, well, now people call it a hot mess or just an up and down mess, you know, uh, trying to be hip with my new words, right? <laughs> he was blessed by God, but continued to flirt with the temptations of the world. His daughters lived in a culture where their life was meaningless without descendants. And so even in this terribly broken situation, God is still faithful and good. Now to the account of Dinah and Shechem. In Genesis 28, Jacob is on the way to the home of his grandfather. So let's, let me do this. So Jacob's, you know, Jacob starts in Pararam, and, he's, he's, and he, he gets to, to Bethel, and he, and he has this vision, you know, the stairway to heaven vision, the famous story, and it's at Bethel. So he names it Bethel, house of God. Then he comes back to the land, and instead of settling here, he settles here in Shechem, because it looks good, I guess. And he buys a plot of land in Shechem, which is one, like a little city-state. Shechem's kind of the king of this little city. They must have a little bit of power. And he settles his family there, and he, and he has a 14 or 15-year-old daughter named Dinah. And Dinah becomes friends with the, the girls in Shechem. Shechem, the king, the little city mayor king, sees Dinah, takes her, and rapes her. But then he decides, hey, I kind of like her. He brings her into his harem, and he says, hey, Jacob, let me sign a pledge with your sons and our daughters so we could create an allegiance. Uh, two of Dinah's brothers, one of whom is Levi, who become the Levites, interesting thing, they're, they're tough, violent guys, and they, they're like, we got to avenge our sister's rape. This is wrong. Jacob who's the patriarch, is passive in the situation. It's really disturbing. And they're just, and Jacob is passive. Um, but two of Dinah's brothers are irate. They create a scheme to avenge their sister's rape. They kill all the men in the village. If you read the story, it's very weird. They use circumcision as a way to get the men immobilized. They use the covenant of God. It's, it's, it's crazy. Um, and Jacob is more concerned how this will affect his ability to build a household in the area because the other tribes and local rulers will rise up and fight against him. So instead of worrying about the rape of his daughter, the first time I read this, I was about 23 years old and I was rattled. I remember this was my Bible. I brought it. And I, 
because I worked with a girl named Dinah at a restaurant. I was working at a restaurant and someone said, where'd your name come from? She's like, I think it's in the Bible. So then I went to the Bible to find it and I read the story and I was like, holy cow, this is weird. And I was like, why did her mom name her Dinah? Uh, with that spelling. I mean, maybe because her mom, I don't know, but uh, I saw the broken deceased tree and was trying to figure out if the forest was beautiful. It was really hard for me. I was like, maybe the forest isn't beautiful. Maybe the Old Testament is messed up and I, I didn't know what to do. I thought God was beautiful and I thought his word was beautiful, but this was not beautiful. It was messed up. It literally led to a three-year journey of me studying the Old Testament and God's covenant faithfulness. Um, and God's covenant faithfulness despite man's continued unfaithfulness. So my challenge to you is keep reading, keep studying. We're here to, we, we want to walk this, through this with you. It's hard, but it's right because it's God's word and he, he's going to teach us through this. The other alternative is we just cut all the stuff out we don't like and then are we really following God or are we just following ourselves? That's the drift toward the things we want to do, not what God has for us and what God has for humanity and for his creation. So finally, Jacob does move to Bethel, and Lawrence is going to preach on that next week. And we, we, it gets better. Jacob's still a mess. He's probably one of the... It's interesting his name gets changed to Israel, because he's, he's, he's probably one of the most messed up of all of them. Um, one additional comment on this sec section. So in prep for this sermon, I asked some of our female ministry leaders for their input. And some of them actually responded in different ways. And someone sent me this in an email. This is from a waypoint, one of our ministry leaders. She says, because of the style of the Hebrew literature, not much moral commentary is made in Genesis. However, God does not allow Genesis 34 to pass without verse seven, because he, Shechem, had done outrageous things in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. And the, the New Living actually says for raping. Um, nothing justifies rape, no cultural views, not a perverted love, nothing. Interesting thing here is the original, the editor of this, or, or Moses when he's telling, retelling the story, adds this, adds this extra statement, because nothing outrageous had been done in Israel. Israel didn't exist at this point. Israel is Jacob's name that gets changed, that becomes a place. The, well, as you're reading this story, the editor wants you to know that rape is wrong. Like, don't ever justify it. So thank you to our sister who, who brought this to light. And, and thanks to all the sisters who have been studying Genesis this semester. And, and, and teach us. We need to hear your voice, especially when we come to these texts that are about women and women being the, the injustice toward women. All right, are you still with me? This has been long. All right. Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar. So before we look at the Judah and Tamar account, that's what was read, I want to read a recap from the internet of an episode of the most popular TV show in America last decade, in the 2010s. This is a recap of, of like the third episode. But most of the episode, episode's action really takes place in King Landings, where Ned renounces his roles as, role as hand of the king after learning that Robert has ordered murder on the Darnies and her unborn child. But that's just the beginning of Ned's woes. Littlefinger takes him to visit the last person that John Aran spoke before he died, a prostitute 
whose baby daughter is another one of Robert's ir illegitimate children. And Ned is ambushed by Jamie Lannister and by his men. A confrontation ensues over Trison's arrest. It ends with the slaughter of Ned's guards and Ned himself getting stabbed in the leg with the spear. It's called a show called Game of Thrones. Um, this was not the most disturbing recap. This was just a random one I picked from the first few episodes. Uh, I'm not sure what to do with this. I'm just making an ob observation. I'm not, I'm not endorsing the show in any way. I've actually never seen it because I was made aware of the gratuitous sexual scenes of violence in the show. But I bring it up here this morning to show that many people in our own present culture can easily entertain themselves on disturbing stories of sex, incest, violence, injustice, greed, and power grabs. I guess, hoping to find redemption in those stories. To binge watch all the episodes will take three days and 16 minutes. That was from the internet. Again, I have not watched the show, I'm just trying to make an observation. One thought I do have on this is I have engaged with many people, including Christians and non-Christians, who want nothing to do with the Old Testament, nothing. Yet they have no problem with many of the TV shows and movies that address similar issues and violence. And, and deal with this. We all need to deal with the brokenness. We all do. This was the, and this is one of many, many shows that had similar type context that, that are addressing the brokenness. I'm not saying watch the show, I'm just, just bringing up an observation. Now to Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar. We heard the account earlier. Basically, Tamar knows in her culture that a man can have sex with whoever he wants. You notice that? The hypocrisy? He's just like, oh, I want to have sex with you. He can. She gets pregnant. What does he say? What does he say? Killer burner. That's disgusting. That's the culture that they lived in. But I would argue that in some ways we're not much different than them. We may not do that, but we'll do parallel things. We have parallel injustices in our culture parallel situations where we are not, we're hip, hip, hypocrites. So she turns the strategy against him and she gets pregnant. And she's not just protest, this is from Tim Keller, she's not just protesting a double standard, oh no. The Bible tells us, especially all through the Old Testament and the New Testament too, the Bible is enormously concerned for the welfare of widows. What's really a little difficult for us is because our society is somewhat different and we don't necessarily understand what the widow represents. All throughout the Bible, there are enormous, an enormous number of statements that tell us God is concerned for us and he wants us to be concerned for the welfare of widows. So what does Judah say? Tamar does what's right. She's the righteous one. And actually Judah changes after this. Um, and this is, this genre, this is from another sister at Waypoint in her comments. This genre is historical narrative. This is how she processed the story. Being such doesn't mean that the actions recorded in these accounts are condoned by the Lord. I think when talking about these stories in particular, this clarifying point has been so helpful for me. I know a lot of people who reject God's word because they have taken stories like these and treated them as justification for their behavior because it's in the Bible. Looking elsewhere in scripture, the prophets, the Psalms, gospels, account, gospel accounts, epistles, 
that proves that these actions are not condoned by the Lord. His love and justice for the vulnerable, outcasts, and oppressed, as well as his judgment on the wicked and unjust, is bursting throughout Scripture. Quote from one of our Waypoint ministry leaders. So how can we as Christians process these disturbing accounts? By looking at them in their original context, and looking at them in the light of the rest of Scripture, in light of God's redemptive plan for history to send Jesus to save people from their sin and bring a new kingdom and a new righteousness by reconciling everything to himself. This leads to the second question. How do we see the love of God and find hope in these accounts? I believe we can see God's glimpses of grace immediately to Lot's daughters, Dinah, Tamar, to bring them out of their difficult situations and even redeem them in the original context. You might ask, why did God not intervene earlier? So we've been studying in their small groups. Anybody ask that in your small group? Why didn't God just stop it? Why didn't God make Jacob a better person? Why, why did God let Judah be the one that becomes Jesus' ancestor, not Joseph? Joseph seems like a much better guy, right? If you, if you contrast the two. How God works in the world and why and when he intervenes to stop sin and execute judgment is evidence in many places in Genesis. Flood, Babel, Sodom. But sometimes God allows the sinful people to continue in their sin. The Bible does address this complex issue in multiple ways, in multiple places. But again, Genesis is not the place where he's always going to address it. We can trust God's love and his kindness and his covenant faithfulness, even when we don't understand why and how he chooses to intervene. But the light of hope of all of Genesis comes to full fulfillment in Matthew chapter 1. This is the first sentence in the New Testament. This is the genealogy. Now, the word, this same phrase shows up, I think, eight times in, in Genesis. The genealogy of Abraham, the genealogy of Isaac. It, Matthew's linking this to Genesis. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That laser focus in Genesis 12 gets us to Jesus. The hope of Genesis is in Matthew 1. The genealogy continues, and it says, Salmon was the father of Boab, whose mother was Rahab. Boab, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, I'm not going to talk about Rahab, but Noah ancient genealogies enlist the women list the women in them unless the women are powerful. They definitely don't list the women if they're scandalous. Um, and we definitely know that Tamar was scandalous. We definitely know that Rahab was scandalous. And Ruth, who's Ruth? She's in Jesus' line. She's a descendant of David. Let's look at Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, notice the name Judah shows back up, a guy from Judah's line, left his home and went to live in the country of Moab. Moab's are the descendants of one of Lot's daughters. Taking his wife and two sons with him, the man's name was Alechem and his wife was Naomi. Their, their two sons, Malon and Kelon, were Ephra, Ephra, Ephraites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Are we waypointites? Is that, can, is that how we should describe ourselves? Because we love the Old Testament too? All right, sorry. Um, and then it says, Then Elechem died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. Notice the same type parallels from some of these other stories. Uh, the two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, 
interesting thing. This is Oprah's birth certificate name and people kept getting it wrong during her life. Oprah Winfrey, people kept getting it wrong for her life so she changed her name. But this is the name on her birth certificate. She's named after one of, uh, one of the daughters of Naomi. Um, and the other one was Ruth. But about 10 years later, both men died, leaving Naomi alone with her two sons, without her, her two sons and husband. Okay, from this lineage will come Ruth uh, so Je and Jesus Christ. Because of Ruth's faith, she will be reckoned among the tribes of Judah, which is a good thing, even though at this point you still think of Judah as a jerk. So... <laughs> In the story of Judah and Tamar, we see God's covenant faithfulness. So, so you see God's faithfulness even with Moab. Moab. David comes from a Moabite. Praise God. A broken, cave-dwelling, incest story. Jesus is, that's how God wants to break through history. Not everything always working out perfectly. He says, I'm going to take the brokenness, and I'm going to save you guys in your brokenness. Then we get to Judah and Tamar. Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkey says this. It's utterly astounding that Judah, in connection with the 12 sons of Jacob, has his name written on the gates of heavenly Jerusalem. This is in Revelation 21:12. He stands as a witness to God's amazing grace. He fails as a son of the covenant, intermarrying with the Canaanites and behaving like them. He fails as a father. His sons are wicked. He fails as a father-in-law. He deceives Tamar. Even the worst of sort of sinners can enter heaven by God's redemptive grace. And the amazing thing is Judah actually turns around after this. This account changes him. Not perfect, but he definitely turns around. Now what about Tamar's twin boys? Now in the Matthew account, there's only two, there's only one extra kid name that's not in the line. And it talks about the twins. And it says Zerah and Perez. Zerah, which means drawn or rising kind of a powerful, royal, stately name. And Perez, which means like breach or breakthrough, kind of like come in the back door. British pastor Andrew Wilson says this, the world looks for Zerah. We want a king who rises up and shines like the dawn. We want the firstborn with a mark of royalty on his fist. But God chooses Perez, the boy of the breach, the child of the breakthrough. He wants the sort of king we would never choose, a younger, weaker boy, David, without the obvious signs of kingship, who only triumphs because God breaks through on his behalf. This is the plot line of Genesis. Again and again, the rising, the Zerah, that looks and presses, loses out to the breakthrough, the Perez. So God is into the Hispanic culture, right? Sorry, bad joke. I had a friend with the last name Perez growing up, Victor Perez. <sighs> Sorry. All right. That looks impressive and loses out to the breakthrough. Human power rises up like the Tower of Babel and comes to nothing. Meanwhile, God makes a breach using an elderly couple in a tent, Abraham and Sarah, older brothers, Cain, Ishmael, Esau, Reuben, Fall, younger brothers, Seth, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, receive the inheritance. Natural fertility based on the rising of human flesh, flesh leads nowhere. The promises came through the woman who wait for the breakthrough, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Tamar, and herself. What is the ultimate Perez? What is the ultimate breach? 
the ultimate breakthrough of God's people? Perez's descendant, 2,000 years later, was born in a poor village, Bethlehem, to poor parents. 2,000 years ago, Jesus breaks through. The light breaks through the darkness. John 1 declares, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. You see the... Children, this is interesting. John inserts this. Children not born of natural descent nor of human decision or of a hundred husbands' will, but born of God. You see the, the Genesis overtones in that passage? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. How do we live and bring the hope of Jesus in a broken world still filled with injustice, violence, and sexual abuse? abuse? One, look to God's covenant faithfulness. If you notice in Genesis, they build a bunch of monuments. Even when they build the monument, they still sin, even though they're in sight of it. But I would challenge you guys to build a monument. Have something in your house, a bookmark, something that reminds you of God's faithfulness. Something, a sticky note on your computer, a, a verse on the mirror. Have monuments around your house, a, a, a pop-up on your phone. Build monuments to remember God's faithfulness, because we will forget. We will drift. Communion. Take communion with a new posture this morning. It's, it's just bread and, and it's just crackers and juice, but it's, it's us receiving the grace of Christ and remembering what he's done for us. Look at yourself. Look at the brokenness in you in the world. Look to God. Look to his redemptive work on the cross. Look to this covenant faithfulness. Look to the empty tomb. Worship the risen Christ. Two, remember that Jesus came into the brokenness. This is really cool. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus, this is about Jesus. Now he had gone through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Jacob, to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. This is the same piece of land where Dinah was raped. That's where Jesus meets the woman at the well. There's a striking similarity between Jesus meeting her and Jesus meeting Hagar at a spring. Jesus comes to the Samaritans, the people who were outcasts, who had been cast out of Jerusalem. And he meets her there at the very place. Jacob, he should have met her in Bethel because that's where the well should have been because that's where, that's where Jacob should have started, settled, but he doesn't. But God redeems that place, I believe, through Jesus. Jacob's well was there and Jesus was tired as he was from the journey, he sat down at the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then he has this dialogue with her. Look at how Jesus views children, outcast women. Look at the tainted women. Look how he comes to them. Jesus comes to the brokenness. Do you need to meet Jesus in the brokenness? Maybe you've been hurt or hurt someone else. My prayer for you this morning is that you come to Jesus. And, and this just isn't about women. Many men have been abused and assaulted too. If that's part of your past, 
share it with us. We, we want to help you. We want to help all of you work through things. Whether you were part of the, you got were the recipient of the brokenness, and you were the abuse, or you were part of the abuse, or an innocent bystander. We got to work through this, but we can, we can come to the brokenness and know that Jesus enters into that brokenness. Bring the, bring the brokenness to Jesus. The Samaritan woman brings people to Jesus. She's not ashamed anymore. Four, continually recognize your need for him. How do we live and bring hope, the hope of Jesus in a broken world still filled with injustice, violence, and sexual abuse? abuse? I think I prayed about what, what would be my final action point. And as I prayed more and more, I said, what's the first thing Jesus proclaims in Matthew? Jesus starts his ministry. What's the first thing he... Matthew says, this is what Jesus says. The, the account before it, he's definitely preaching, but this is what, Jesus, what Matthew records. And he says, one day, he, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. And this is from the New Living Translation. It says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So how are we going to do this? We're going to do it by realizing we're poor and we need God. We need Jesus all the time. We're going to do it by mourning with those who mourn and weeping with those who weep. We're going to do it by being humble. We're going to do it by hungering and thirsting for justice. We're going to do that by showing mercy. We're going to do it by striving to have a pure heart. We're going to do it for, by working for peace. And when we're persecuted, we're going to trust that God is with us. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion. God, this is a lot. I just pray that you move in our hearts. And for those right now who just need your grace, God, I pray that if they need to go to one of the, while we're singing, if they need to walk up to someone in the room with the yellow lanterns, go pray with them. If someone in this room doesn't know Jesus, they say, today's the day I want to follow Jesus. May today be a new day, God. May you fill their heart. May they talk to one of the people who brought them or, or one of the folks with the lanyards that they can hear what it means to follow Jesus. God, for those who have been heard or have heard other, God, if anything came up today, God, I just pray that we would come to this table and we would accept your grace, accept your forgiveness, forgive others, and, and just trust, God, that even in the brokenness, you are working. God, prepare our hearts for what you have for us as we take the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.